0: So notice how you feel listening to that. Good. <laughs> I'm, good. I'm feeling good. What do you know? <laughs> yeah. So music's amazing, isn't it? It's just—it's one of those things that's, I think, the most transformative of the mind state. It's so quick, so immediate. You could play a whole different range of music and watch the moods follow the music. But I won't. <laughs> you can do that at home when you can't. So, as I said, I want to talk about joy this evening, and how that, where the place of joy on the path in our practice. And I want to talk about it because uh, I just came back from teaching a meditation retreat down in Baja, which was. Extraordinarily joyful, and so I had a lot of reflections about joy and what what about that that it was so joyful. Aside from the fact that it was Baha, and it was beautiful weather. (laughs) Um. So and as and I want I want to. preface the talk by saying uh, sometimes when people hear about joy or talk on joy, there's an assumption that somehow we should be joyful. Which is not the case. But there's certainly a case for understanding this practice as a path that leads to deeper capacity for joy in ourselves, in our experience, in our lives. Even though often the teachings are oriented towards understanding suffering, which may seem paradoxical, in some ways it is, but it's only by understanding uh, what hinders, what gets in the way of our capacity to be awake, to open, to love, that we unshackle some of the bindings on our capacity for the heart to know happiness and joy. So um, this retreat in Baha was uh, interesting. I've taught it many times in various conditions with various groups of people. And um, this retreat was, was, was <coughs> remarkable for me in terms of its uh, joyful quality, uh, both in the people's capacity on, on the course to uh, open to joy, but also the conditions were quite supportive but also the way the practice uh, supports and illuminates our, uh, openness to be touched in a way that gladdens the, the spirit and the soul. So there was these retreats that I do out in nature, they're silent. And, you know, of course, the this course for many people may not have been so joyful. We're sleeping outside, you don't shower for a week, you're sleeping on the ground on rough, pebbly, stony beaches. Um, you know, for some people that's not exactly joyful. <laughs> um, you know, many other conditions that, that many people might not, You know, it's, it's both very hot and cold, it's windy a lot, you're paddling a lot, it's uncomfortable, being outside is generally uncomfortable. Um, And, but what's interesting is uh, uh, what's joyful just to be away from computers for a week, I noticed that. (laughs) There was not one email to be had (laughs) for miles around (laughs) or phone calls or texts or emails or Facebook messages. So, So it was interesting just to see the mind free from that. You know, having spent the day looking at my screen today and doing various kinds of work and seeing that relationship to joy <laughs> and diminishing returns <laughs> the longer I spent looking at the screen, which was all day, as probably many of you did today. But it was just interesting you know, we, to see that we don't give ourselves that many technology breaks, you know, that many social media breaks, that many email computer breaks. And you're just, you're just curious to see how much more spacious the mind was, is. And lighter, and not so narrowly focused. The silence, as um, uh, which is an integral part of many retreat practices, especially here at Spirit Rock and also in my nature retreats, um, is also an interesting factor in in relationship to joy because the silence allows the mind to get quiet. The silence allows the mind to be more tuned, to be more open, to be more sensitive. And you combine that with the practice of (coughs) mindfulness and being in an environment that's very beautiful and you have really interesting conditions for things to flower. Particularly because of the practice of awareness. And particularly because when you're outside, you're in your body, you're in your senses. The senses are in the present moment. And the practice of mindfulness supports that attuning and opening. So it's a really interesting combination. It's why I do these retreats. Because uh, to immerse oneself outside to practice awareness, so you're opening up that receptivity. To do that in the context of really being in your body and in your senses allows you to be touched, allows you to be opened by... And the environment doesn't have to be beautiful to be opened and touched. As it turned out, it was very beautiful. and The weather was beautiful. And we were graced by a lot of dolphins and whales and seabirds and, uh, and what And as a teacher, it was interesting for me to watch and observe different people's capacities for joy. Because we all have our own mm, comfort zone with joy and happiness. And often we're not so comfortable when the joy is very expansive when it gets beyond our normal familiar identity or, or comfort zone. So there was a great example, we were watching the sun, we get up really early, we get up at 5, 5.30 to watch the sun rise, which for some would be or- automatically misery inducing, but anyhow, that's what we do. <laughs> and uh, we get up just before, it's just almost, it's almost dark. <clears throat> and it's a very slow peeling of colors before the sun rises, excuse me. And there's one particular sunset, we were by the water and it just went on and on and on. It just kept kept getting more beautiful, more spectacular, more radiant. And I had the feeling, as did many of the people, it's like, oh, I can't take anymore. more. Oh my God, it's so gorgeous. Oh my God, I can't take any more. Oh my God, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna dissolve. <laughs> And to see the heart has to—it's almost like it stretches. It feels almost feels like an ache uh, to open sometimes to to a different level of joy than, than we're used to. So, um, but as I say, it was interesting for me to see how some people completely embrace the joy and 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 open to it, sort it. Some people were more contained. Some more reserved. Um, and some more caught up in their own internal process that they weren't able to actually so appreciate the environment, which is often how we are in our lives. We often don't notice, like how many people noticed the the owls this evening walking up. Right? I mean, some people, but they've been hooting all evening, and as they do often here, um, you know. But we're busy in our lives, in our minds, in our conversations, and in a rush, and and we don't see. Like how many people see the moonrise or the sunsetting or the, the texture of light or the shades of blossoms that are showering us with color and fragrance. And so to reflect, what, what, what is your relationship to joy? What is your relationship to orienting to this quality, joy, well-being, contentment, <coughs> happiness, I'm going to talk more about specifics about joy. What is your relationship to it? Do you have it? Is is it a conscious relationship? Is there a reflection about what supports joy to 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 flourish? Because so much of these practices are really inclined in that way. To understand what what supports joy and happiness, well-being to flourish, and what supports suffering and pain and self-contraction, constriction to maintain. So I like this line from Annie Lamont. She says, joy is the best makeup. Mm -hmm. Joy is the best makeup. So I once heard Achan Amaro, who is a, Uh, monk and teacher and used to be on the teacher council here at Spirit Rock before we moved back to England. And he talks about the Buddha being the ultimate hedonist, which is not a usual association with the Buddha because he's known as the ascetic one and renunciate and he's a monk and celibate and doesn't sound like too hedonistic, (laughs) no alcohol, no eating afternoon. But he was, he was referring to him in, as the ultimate hedonist in that was the ultimate pleasure seeker, that he knew the ultimate source of pleasure and therefore was hedonistic from a certain point of view In that he knew how to establish himself in the kind of joy and the happiness and the peace that we're seeking. And, and Ajaanamara went well, on to say that he was also the second ultimate hedonist trying to follow in his place Um, Anyway, he was a very, as those of you who know him, he's a very joyful, happy monk. He's a beautiful example of of the life that's given to understanding what really brings happiness and joy. It's not a life of consumerism and getting ahead, but really of simplicity and presence and renunciation. So, but it's interesting that the Buddha, um, in his own life, you know, gave gave up a very, you know, seemed from the outside happy, wealthy, had access to the, the, all the pleasures of the day, kind of like we do in Marin, <laughs> it's in the Bay Area. Uh, a lot of there's a lot of candy on offer here, um, but he gave it all up. He said that doesn't it doesn't it doesn't bring the kind of Uh, happiness that I'm looking for. The happiness that's more enduring. So, it's a reflection for us. Well, what what, what would that mean? That someone would give up all of this to live a very simple renunciate life in order to find deeper joy. And one of the reasons I love doing these nature retreats is they're so simple. You're out there... You have a few belongings, and uh, life gets very simple. You need to be warm, you need to eat a little bit, you need for community. Uh, Very simple, very, very simple pleasures, very simple happiness, ordinary happiness. So it's also the season of spring which is I find it hard not to be happy in spring frankly and, you know with the flowers and the grasses and the bees and the the, the songbirds return and someone was telling me about watching a, a steelhead trout going up the creek and Samuel P Taylor and the coho salmon and You know, just the wonders of nature coming back to life. But as, you know, as the saying in Vegas goes, you have to be present to win. We have to be present (laughs) to... to know joy. And so the practices is is to wake us up. In this very simplistic form, to wake us up to... uh, get us in the present moment. If we're not in the present, then... We're chasing after a uh, happiness in the future, which may never come. Let me read you a poem I wrote about spring. This year, spring has arrived triumphantly, like Napoleon through the Arc to Triomphe, timely as a Swiss train, bold as a general sending troops into battle, and like Monet in love with color, splashing paint across the open fields. Like you, I too missed her official entry, that click at 2 a.m. when the hour hand officially advances one hour, as the Sunday papers remind us, and awoke that first day feeling deprived of that precious time, cheated of the leisure of morning. But that quickly ceased to matter as the season of joy was here, wearing her most colorful hats like maidens attending a wedding, and the blossom's perfume began to seep into every corner of the dusty house while bees flitted gleefully over cups of nectar. Of course the birds knew the secret all along. They had been busily preparing their nests and singing their hopeful songs, while the cherry blossom and the iris had been trying to tell me all this time that spring in all her wonderful gowns was already here. So we don't need to wait for the clocks. So you know, one way of understanding practice, as I said, is to understand, well, uh, if you know, some would say joy is part of our nature, what is it that gets in the way? What is it that allows us to more, to, that doesn't allow us to dwell there? So how many of you were meditating in perfect delight the last 45 mm-hmm. minutes? Well, you get a good window into what happens. Why, why, that, why are we not just dwelling in happiness? Because we're, we're lost. In our minds, and our stories, our daydreams, our fantasies, our worries, our work stresses, our relationship woes. The mind conditioned to look for, to anticipate the difficult, the fearful, the catastrophes. Yeah, so we spend a lot of time spinning. Yeah. So hopefully the mindfulness illuminates, oh yeah, I don't need to be doing that. I've done that 73 times today already. Oh yeah, that's really not so helpful. And I did it yesterday, funnily enough. Yeah, and the day before. This is, um, the poet, half puts it this way. He says, what do sad people have in common it seems that they've all built a shrine to the past, and often go there and do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? Is to stop being relig- stop being so religious like that. <laughs> so we're very religiously devout to our mind and our thoughts and our habits that don't necessarily serve our well-being. So when I first of this practice in the early '80s. Um, I was very confused and um, not very happy, and uh, quite angry. Mostly confused and and deluded, and um, but was struck as I started doing the practice in a grand total of five minutes a day. Uh, that was my meditation practice for a while, and I went to ten, and you know. Uh, How much it's it just awoke something kind of awoke and awoke an awareness up and I suddenly started looking less through the lens of uh, My confusion and more through the lens of oh, what's here? What's What's actually happening around me? and I was living in the East End of London, which was pretty gray and run-down and depressed at the time but you know, beauty's in the high of, in the eye of the beholder, and there's always, you know, depending on our state of mind, and this is really a, a key teaching in joy, is that the the capacity to, to access this quality really depends on how we orient and relate to experience. So prior to meditating, I had been really focused on what was wrong, and the poverty, and the uh, the squalor, and the rundown state of where I was living, and of course I was squatting rundown houses at the time, so it didn't help, you know, sort of. <laughs> but um, the choices that I was making, and, and, and you know, one of the liberating things about mindfulness practice is, is is we see we have a choice over where we place our attention, which is very simple but very radical. We don't have to just act out the ordinary habits of the mind that are somewhat reactive and not necessarily so oriented towards our well-being. So I began to notice the little nature that was around and uh, the acts of kindness that were going on around me and and it just shifted my whole uh, state of mind actually and I started enjoying living where I was living and started being less reactive to the people I was around and uh started having some moments of happiness and 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 joy. So it was quite uh, it was quite a turnaround for me given that the angry state that I started in. So and that's been a that's been a key teaching for me in a lot of my in a lot of in a lot of my practice is that one of my favorite lines of the Buddha. Whatever you frequently incline, whatever the mind frequently inclines and ponders towards, that the mind becomes. Whatever the mind frequently ponders and dwells upon, that the mind becomes. Or whatever we incline the mind towards, whatever we incline our attention towards. So the the invitation is to look, where are you inclining your mind? This is like, if, if if you just took this question for a year or a day even, that'd be good enough. Start with a day, (laughs) or an hour. (laughs) Just like you do when you're sitting, where does your mind go? Someone uh, shared with me this great quote that I'm reflecting on a lot these last few days, uh, which is, um, to find out what you're committed to, look at your life. To find out what you're committed to, Look at, you. Look at the conditions of your life, because that's what you're committing to. Okay? Whatever, whatever, what the choices that we make in our day, how we fill our time and our energy and our choices, right, is what we're committed to. So, to take that to what are we committed to in terms of inclining our attention? What it, where are we inclining that supports or hinders the development of gladness? And we all have grooves and habits in our minds that uh, are worthy of paying attention to, looking. Oh, does this really, you know, when I keep droning on about why I'm not good enough, does this really support my well-being? Apparently not, if you miserable. So it reminds me of the, the poem by Hefez, um, the line from Hafez uh, where he says, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare, do not mix them, do not mix them. And we do, because we're human. You know, We see someone having a great time and instead of rejoicing, we feel envy. Like a little jealous, like oh, how come I on not having that? We start judging ourselves. How come that so happened? I'm not, and it's not fair. It's all my parents' fault, and no. no, no. And start miss. <laughs> you know, and we go and we create this soup of, you know, feeling like crap. <laughs> and he says, you have all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix those. Mix those. So what we're doing here is we're looking at well, what, what are the what are the ingredients? Well, you know they're both generic and they're also particular to our lives. So the Buddha talked about two kinds of happiness. Um, he talked about uh, worldly happiness and Not really a great translation, otherworldly happiness, which I don't really like that translation, but um, I'll say more about what that means. And we all have access to a lot of worldly happiness just simple, the simple pleasures of um, seeing the blossoms as you're driving about, seeing friends here, you know, the quiet, the stillness in meditation. Drinking a cup of tea can be joyful, especially if you're English. <laughs> so, a coffee maybe for you lot. <laughs> so, these these are the ha- these are pleasures that, that the joy that comes from from sensory pleasure you could say. And there's you know of course there's a place for that. I want to share a poem. Uh, from Mary Oliver. This, uh, I think of this poem a lot when I'm out in nature and doing the retreat that I just did. Uh, it's about the sun. She says, Have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful than the way the sun every morning, relaxed and easy, floats towards the horizon and into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea? and is gone and how it slides again out of the blackness every morning on the other side of the world like a red flower streaming upward on its heavenly oils, say on a morning in early summer at its perfect imperial distance. And have you ever felt for anything such wild love? Do you think there is anywhere in any language a word billowing enough for such pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out as it warms you, as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you, too, turned from the world? Have you, too, gone crazy for power or for things? So, in a way, she's speaking to that, this, this choice that we have, you know, about where we incline our attention. But it requires an openness, it requires a presence, it requires a receptivity, it requires slowing down enough. It requires not having gone crazy for stuff, for things that clutter uh, our time and our attention. So there's ordinary happiness, uh, sensory happiness, and then there's that kind of happiness, um, you could say a more spiritual kind of happiness or a Happiness is not so dependent on the conditions that we're in, and this is really the kind of joy that the Buddha is speaking to. When you see these Buddhas, and they have this little smile. This one looks a bit grumpy, but this one has a more of a smile. Um, I mean, you know, subtle, not really grumpy, just reflective. You know. <laughs> um, serious It's the smile of equanimity it's the smile of this 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 quality of, of happiness that's that's unperturbed yeah so it's a kind of happiness that you know when you wake up or you you're going through a day and the conditions may be you know you may be stuck in traffic or you're getting some difficult different conversations or your kids are needing a lot of attention, and, but there's a certain kind of buoyancy in your mind, in your heart, that's not so, that's not needing the conditions to change in order for you to feel well being. Yeah, this is a really key point in practice. And something that I, I take a lot of delight in, in observing in my own practice when, when this quality arises where, you know, I could be hungry or cold or in a difficult situation, and it's just, just, just in a well-being. So you can notice this when you sit. When you sit and your mind is all over the place and your body's restless and you're agitated, but there can still be a sense of well-being, still a sense of peace, still a sense of being unperturbed by all of that. There's a certain sweetness in the mind. So and the, the, the seed of this, the, the cause of this, is awareness, is mindfulness. That's why there's so much instruction about residing, abiding, resting in awareness as awareness, yeah, that's privy to the conditions that come and go, but not to be so caught in the conditions, whether it's emotions or reactivity or distress or physical pain. So that the meditation is a training, oh yeah, I can, I can, my, my knees feel like they're burning and about to fall off, but I can still feel at ease in the sitting because I know it's just sensation coming and going. It's a great training for when there's difficulty in our lives. So to take refuge in this quality of presence, the quality of awareness, because it's really the doorway to happiness, to freedom, to well-being, to equanimity, to letting go, to non-reactivity. So one of the qualities um, that's an aspect of mindfulness is the quality of beginner's mind. And uh, I was noticing this in Baja because I know Baja really well now from having gone there a lot and you know, when we're not in beginner's mind you know, I could have been down there paddling, it's like ah, oh, it's just a bunch of pelicans yeah, I saw them last year yeah, you know <laughs> ah, it's whale, just, you know, they were here too last year yeah. <laughs> Oh, another sunrise or oh, whatever <laughs> bit of gold and crimson, you know <clears throat> you know, we can do that sometimes Oh, yeah, yeah that's just so-and-so, you know, my partner, no. <laughs> but we do, you know, we glaze over, we stop seeing, stop being fresh, we stop being awake to, to what's here in front of us. But when we can approach things with that freshness of spirit, then there's a lot of aliveness, a lot of curiosity. And I think nature evokes that because it's so, it's so diverse and so complex and so rich in its um, myriad, it's just its endless expression of variance and complexity and beauty. <coughs> so this is from Arthur Miller who wrote once, um, I remember while the transformation took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I'd gazed at all my life now became an unending source of wonder. And with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup. Whatever came to hand, I looked upon it as if I'd never seen it before. To paint is to love again, to live again, and to see again. To paint, or to, to, paint to meditate, to bring presence, to bring beginner's mind is to love again, to live again, to see again. So this is, I think, you know, one of the key building blocks for presence and for being attuned, being a, um, like a tuning fork to joy, is to, to approach things with that quality. Here's an example of that. There's a poem by Anne Sexton called Welcome Morning. Now, see if see if you see if you do this in the morning. If you do, you're under a good thing. There is joy in all: in the hair I brush each morning, in the towel newly watched I touch that I rub my body with each morning, in the chapel of eggs I cook each morning, in the outcry from the cattle that heats my coffee each morning, in the spoon and the chair that cry hello there, Anne, each morning, in the godhead of the table that I set my silver plate cup upon each morning. All of this is sacred right here in my pea greenhouse each morning. And I mean though often forget, and I mean though often forget to give thanks, to faint down by the kitchen table in a prayer of rejoicing as the holy birds at the kitchen window peck into their marriage of seeds. So while I think of it, let me paint a thank you on my palm for this laughter of the morning, lest it go unspoken. The joy that isn't shared I've heard dies young. So, that's approaching breakfast with beginner's mind. <laughs> There's something about the, the imagination and, the, and the, the curiosity of a poet uh, lends itself to this quality of being touched, of being inspired. So there's a line, I don't know if Blake actually said this, but it's an, a line in another poem uh, that says, Blake's wife uh, in quotes, um, I miss my husband so, she's talking about the poet William Blake, I miss my husband so, he's so often in paradise. <laughs> he's so often in paradise. You know, you get the sense from reading his poems, he's walking up in the Lake District in England, and he's just, he's seeing the divine glory of you know, the universe on his morning walk, and he paints and writes about it, and um, that's why I have such an affinity for poetry, because it, 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 it's touching that, that capacity, and it's, it's, sh- it's showing away, oh, yeah, this is possible. Many more things to say. So little time. There's a, there's a, here's a line from the Buddha. So there's many different ways that the Buddha points to developing joy in practice, and maybe I'll talk about this next week. Um, one of the things that arises in, in deep meditation, uh, for those of you who are interested in exploring concentration practice, or those of you who had, have, had, had, um, I think part of my brain's still in Baja. <laughs> is the quality of, of joy and that arises from a unified mind. So one of the purposes of meditation is to gather and collect the scattered, uh, distracted, restless mind. Anybody have that kind of mind? Distracted, <laughs> restless, scattered? Right? So part, you know, partly why we use the breath is to unify, is to focus, is to gather. You know, and when we do gather, and when we absorb, and when we settle, you know, for one breath, a few breaths, many, sometimes many breaths, sometimes for long periods, it's delicious, isn't it? Where it's just Everything else we let go of, and it's just this breath, just life breathing itself, in breath, out breath. And all of our worries and our plans, that are completely irrelevant, we're just absorbed in the moment. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens. And as we develop our meditation skill, that there, there can be more access to that, and, and if you, particularly, if you uh, are able to do meditation retreats, then that quality can be really be developed. And I spent many long retreats developing that capacity of absorption and concentration that, that allows the mind to, to touch really amazing uh, levels of joy and rapture and bliss that are way more interesting and uh, powerful than any kind of worldly experience of joy can be, which is really the, some of the fuel for meditators and for monks and nuns is just to, to access this really, these really deep rivers of joy in meditation. They come from absorption, come from jhana states, they're called. And um, there's a line in, the, in, in one of the texts that the Buddha is talking about. Uh, there's a, a second level of absorption. So the first is a, is a more generalized sense of happiness. The second is a, is a deep rapture. And the Buddha says, the meditator enters and remains in absorption in this state. He permeates and pervades and suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of composure. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure. It's not bad for a renunciate, ascetic monk. As <laughs> yes, you get the sense of how um, there's really a place for letting that touch you and bathe you. So whether that's in meditation or in watching a sunrise, or watching your children, or taking a walk in nature, there's really a place for letting that really feed you, really nourish your body, your heart, your soul, your your mind, and to really take time to relish. It's really, really healthy and healing for the nervous system to let yourself be touched and bathed in that when it arises. And that's, again, where the, where the support of the practice comes in. If we have a mind that's trained, if, you, if there's some training, some awareness of the mind, then when those states arise, there's more capacity to learn how to help them sustain and maintain themselves. The Buddha said, Your own worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own mind unguarded, but once mastered, no one can help you as much. So that's why we partly train. You know, We sit in meditation. It's the training of the mind. So we're more fluent and adept when we're in our lives. Both for dealing with difficulty and dealing with beauty and joy and love. So another aspect of joy, which is how it's more commonly taught in in Buddhist teachings is this quality of mudita, which is to celebrate the happiness of others, which is quite a rare quality um, because we normally get wrapped up in jealousy and envy and comparison, and how come they have and I don't, and what does it say about me? And and I had the great example of this uh, the day after the retreat. Uh, I was sitting in a cafe with some folks from the retreat, and then some other folks from the retreat came, and there was a big, love, like a sort of love hug fest, because, um, you know, they hadn't seen each other for like three hours or something, you know? <laughs> So and there's just such a lot of joy and, and connection in the group, it was just very, very sweet, and so, uh, and these this two people were giving each other a really beautiful, fun hug, and they were laughing, and and then this, this guy sitting on the table next to us, he said, so, what have you been up to? <laughs> Are you on drugs or something? <laughs> but he was so touched and he came over and he said, you know, I just wanna say, it's so amazing, it's so wonderful to see two people just loving each other and expressing, them, expressing it so openly and publicly like that. And he was moved to tears by the, by the depth of joy and, and affection and and I was moved by his capacity to experience it and acknowledge it and express it because that's equally rare for someone to to see that to appreciate it and not go oh that's just a bit weird you know <laughs> it's a bit Californian isn't it you know and <laughs> you know to feel envious or you know, dismiss it whatever you know with a lot of reactivity we can have to other people's delight and joy. And so um, it was a great example of that quality of mudita, of, of someone's capacity to appreciate joy. And of course what happens is he feels joyful. You know, it, it's, it's a win-win <laughs> to celebrate the joy of another, if we can only remember to do that. The Dalai Lama said, you increase your chances of happiness by 7 billion to 1 if you cultivate the, this quality of appreciative joy. Right? There's, there's so many people having joyful... Times, right? Happiness, simple, beautiful, ordinary, profound. If we can delight, then then just it just grows. It just, it, just, it feeds itself. line from Rabindrath Tagore. Tagore. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. I acted and behold, service was joy. So mostly I've been talking about sort of the attentional quality of joy, how we can understand, uh, illuminate, and, and, and foster it. But there are also many more active practices that kindle, awaken, stimulate, nourish the quality of joy, <coughs> service being one of them. So I've been following recently this organization called Service Project, um, that recently changed its name and uh, it's a project based on generosity. Anybody know that, familiar with that service project? No. Um, Wonderful uh, organization, and they they do various kinds of generosity projects, one of which is the Pay It Forward uh, restaurants. So there's a Pay It Forward restaurant in Berkeley where you go and you have your meal, and your meal's already been paid for by the people who were there before you and then you're invited to pay it forward for the people who come after you. So it's a practice in, in receiving and giving generosity. It's a very beautiful, simple idea that's uh, touching a lot of lives. You know, I mean, they, they, often the example is to, you know, give, you know, pay for the person's toll behind you. Or, um, but this is, to, is um, there's also something about uh, actually seeing it more live in a way. So I'm mentioning that as a way to, you know, there there, there are many different practices. Um, Generosity being such a simple and easy accessible practice to touch into that sense of, you know, it's really it's about getting out of our own way, dissolving some of the some of the isolation and and the false sense of separation we have, and connecting with others. Generosity, through many other ways. Well, I think that will be enough for now. I have many more things, and maybe I'll. I'm here next week, so maybe I'll continue uh, discussion on joy and um, its practices. So thank you so much for your attention, and. and pay attention this week to. Um, uh, and again, this this isn't you have to be joyful practice or in joyful instruction because that's just misery. <laughs> and I have to be happy. Great. I feel like shit, but I'm really happy. Um, no, it's about paying attention. Oh, what cultivates joy, in a very simple way, in very, both in your in, in your mind and your attention, but also in a very practical way. I remember when I was writing my book, Awake uh, in the Wild, and you know the thing that brings me most joy is nature, as you can probably guess, and I was working really hard on the book and also teaching a lot, and I didn't have time to go out and, uh, or do much, much of anything else, and a friend called me and said, how are you doing? I said, no, I'm, you know, I'm just working hard, and it feels pretty grim, and he says, what are you doing for joy? I said, well, nothing really. I'm just you know, trying to get through this project. And <laughs> I said, oh, well, yeah, maybe I should do something a day. So, I decided, so from that moment on, I, I hiked every day. And it was that time of year in the, it was when we had mu- rain for two months. So I hiked in the rain for two months straight. And it was fabulous. And it completely transformed my life and the book and everything else. So um, maybe as your practice, your, as your very difficult homework this week, um, you do one thing a day that brings you joy. Which for some people, that's actually quite a task. I've given that practice like, oh, that's really hard. I don't know if I can do that. (laughs) You'd be surprised. You might be one of them. So um, give yourself that treat, and um, I look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. Be well. May all beings be joyful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit